Hey guys, so good to be back with you this week. If I've not met you, I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. And uh, for those of you who I've uh, met before or you've been tuning in, uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I was away for a few weeks. So excited about what God is doing in and through some of our campuses. I had the opportunity to be down at South Carolina at our Gathering Point campus. And this weekend, they are meeting in their new location. So, so excited about what God is doing in and through them to make Jesus make sense there in Greenville. Had a chance last weekend to be at our Barberton campus. Uh, they celebrated their big event and they had great turnout, great energy, great enthusiasm. So they run into some new vision together. So excited about that. Many of our campus were there helping. I was thankful to see that. And then excited about our County Line campus in Sterling, Ohio. Uh, this weekend, they're having their man camp and Pastor Christian is leading that. And so excited about what God is doing there. We also here this weekend have our teenagers, uh, uh, somewhere 80, 90, teenagers together at our youth retreat and excited about what God's going to be doing in and through their life. God's doing some really, really awesome things here. And so that's part of what this for all through all thing that we've been talking about is for. Thank you for many of you that have signed up. We have about 150 families that have made a pledge, said we want to be a part of this. We're getting closer and closer to where we need to be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you who are like, hey, I want to jump in. You can still do that. Go online, check this out. We want to stir a movement of prayer, a culture of discipleship, and have a mindset of investment as we run into these opportunities together. So thank you for those of you who are participating. We're in this series. Pastor Aiden has, uh, has kicked it off the last few weeks. He's done an incredible job. And the series is found in Exodus chapter 34. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. We'll throw it on the screen. But here's what it says. It's simply a passage in the Old Testament. We've said it this way. It is the part of the Bible that's most quoted by the Bible. And where Moses is asking God to show him his glory. Describe yourself to me. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord passed before him. Moses proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Aiden talked about that. A God merciful and gracious. He's emotionally invested to the point where he will graciously act. Slow to anger is where we're going to be today. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But a fascinating passage that we've been unwrapping together. We've been asking this question. If we ask you this today, and I just want you to do this right there where you're at. I've had a chance to meet some of you this week. And so thank you for that. And you've emailed us. Uh, but right there, wherever you're at, just take a minute. If I were to say to you, describe what comes to your mind when you think of God, what would you say? Uh, there's this old author, A.W. Tozier, 20th century pastor. He says this, whatever came to your mind just then uh, is the most important thing about you. The history of mankind will probably show that no people, no culture has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man or woman at any given time is not what they say or do, but what they deep in their heart conceive God to be like. That's A.W. Tozier, and that is a book that he wrote called The Knowledge of the Holy. I would really recommend you grab that. 
Uh, what's interesting to me is precisely why we're in this series called God Is, because we all, you included, carry a working theology that erupts into the way we live our life. Our theology works its way out. That's what he's saying. Whatever you think of God will translate in how you live. Uh, and so that's why we're doing this series. And the purpose of this series is found in the verse we didn't read, right? After the passage we read. That after God passes and he literally reveals himself to Moses, Moses bowed to the ground at once and he worshiped God. God, the goal of this series, the God is series, is that the glory of God would pass in front of us, that all that God says about himself would pass in front of us in a way that would wow us, you ready, into worshiping the God of the Bible. Moses asked him, show me your glory, describe yourself to me. And we're looking at his description because it's the most quoted part of the Bible, by the Bible, and Moses' response is to bow and worship. So we've already covered the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Today, here's where we're at, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Let me just stop for a second and ask this question. Slow to anger. Is that a description that you would give to yourself? Be honest. It's okay, right? Like when I was a kid, my mama wouldn't have given me that description. (laughs) No way. She said, Danny, you have your granddaddy's temper, right? When I was a kid, she used to say, you, your temper is going to get you into trouble. And it did one day. Uh, I, I had a quick-triggered temper. And I remember I was playing basketball with my brother. My brother's three years older than me, tall, dark, and handsome, and all those things, athletic. I was short and chubby, and, but I was just competitive. I had spitfire in me. We're playing basketball one day. And he said that I had dribbled the ball out of bounds. And I, to this day, at 57, say, no way. I didn't dribble the ball out of bounds. And I got so mad, I threw the ball at him. And I walked off, got about 30 yards away, literally about 30 yards away. And I found me the rock of the size, about that size, in the shape of a triangle. And I was so mad. And I turned, and I looked at him, and I threw that rock. I just wanted to scare him, kick up some dust. I mean to tell you, that thing sailed almost like in slow motion. I could see it going end over end. And that thing caught him right on the lip. (laughs) And it was like his lip erupted into a fire rider of blood. And he went running to the house and blood's flying everywhere. And I thought, my life as I know it is over. Yeah, when I was young, slow to anger wasn't how I would describe myself. Maybe you wouldn't either. For a lot of us, any discussion about anger usually has a little bit of road rash attached to it. For some of us, we can look at our own anger and we can say, well, that's created a lot of scars in my life. My anger has created some shrapnel. Uh, For some of us, we hear this and we're like, no, it's the anger of others, whether it be people in authority, parents, coaches, teachers, that has created in me scars and wounds. Uh, All of that, our, our kind of relationship with anger makes it really, really hard for us to get our head around when God describes himself in relationship to anger. It can feel dangerous to us. It can feel hard for us to get our head around. It can be easy for us to mischaracterize. Uh, Here's what I mean by that. For some of us, uh, we hear slow to anger, and all we hear in that is the anger part. We totally miss the slow part. And so we're like, I knew it. I knew it. God's angry, right? 
There might be some of us that, that you're thinking, that's what kept me from being a Christian in the first place, that God is angry. I found this, um, that the famous skeptic Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, said that the primary reason he did not believe Jesus was because Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath of God. He said this, that Christ's belief in the wrath of God was the one profound defect in Jesus' character. He said, so I'm not going to be a Christian because of the wrath of God. C.S. Lewis, you hear us quote him quite a bit. Many of you have read his stuff. said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. In his book, The Problem of Pain. For some of you, you don't hear the slow, you just hear the angry. But for others of you, you hear the slow and you miss the angry. And the slow turns into an O. And you're literally like, God gets angry? You gotta be kidding me. Hasn't the 21st century version of God evolved past that somehow? That's why I find it interesting that God, when he describes himself, he describes the speed of his anger. I mean, expect grace, you expect kindness, you expect love, you expect compassion. But in his personal ad describing himself, there is something intrinsic for each of us to know about his anger and the speed of it. God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. You ought to write that down somewhere and let that kind of sink in. What does that mean? Well, the King James Version of the Bible, some of you use that. We use the word long-suffering. Uh, this word sometimes is used as patient. But in the Hebrew, so Exodus 34 was written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew, uh, it's two words is where we get this slow to anger. And the two words are erek apayim. Say that. Just say it out loud. Go ahead. You're at a coffee shop? Go ahead, say it. Arek apayim. They're like, I know Hebrew, right? Yeah. And what that word means, it literally means long of nose. <laughs> I know. It means long nostrils. The, the God's Pinocchio. I don't know. Right? God has a long nose. That's what it means, right? I mean, what in the world? The, 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 the idea that God has a long nose, what in the world does that mean? What literally was the Hebrew way of expressing this idea that anger a lot of times shows up in our face, right? And, and, and actually, we've seen pictures of how this happens, right? The bull and the nostrils that are snorting and, and it, the nose is a part of that, right? It's just a metaphor. It's just a pictorial way to understand that slow to anger is to have a long nose, which makes it really interesting in this inside out, the, the, the picture of anger, he didn't even have a nose, <laughs> right? He didn't even have a nose. I find it interesting that we have our own uh, phrases that we use to talk about anger. See if you ever heard this, I get hot under the, I heard you, under the collar. <laughs> now, how about this? They have a short, yeah, you're, I, you're doing great. They have a short fuse. You've heard these things. Uh, I blew my top. They lost their mind. Uh, my coach came unglued. Yeah, what, what, what the writer is saying is God is a wreck, a pium, that he has a long nose. He is slow to anger. Now, here's what I know. And we just need to spend a few minutes teasing this out. For some of us listening today, and I'm so glad you're listening, by the way, 
Let us know you're listening. For some of you, we need to emphasize this because all you hear is anger. And what you need to realize is it says he's slow to anger. I think this is so relevant for some of us today. Many of us, when we think of God, we think of God as quick-triggered, fickle, volatile. He's like a drill sergeant in the sky waiting to smash me, waiting to get me. He's a God that literally scares the bejeebers out of me. Anybody, anybody, is that your view or you grew up with that view? I hear a lot of people that went to certain kinds of schools, religious schools, whatever, and they're like, man, I, the, they scared me, the people there, and I had a scary view of God. It might be because the authority figures in your life were angry people, and so you've transferred that onto God. Maybe your dad was angry, your mama was angry, your coach was angry. For me, it was a seventh grade teacher. Man, my seventh grade science teacher, his reputation preceded him. And when I got in his class, I was scared to death of him. I wanted to stay out of his way. I wanted to be unnoticed. I didn't even want him to see me. I just wanted to survive his class. I I didn't even care what grade he gave me because I wasn't going to challenge it. I just wanted to get to the other end of it. I remember one day he came into class. He's a big guy and he'd have a booming voice. And I... We had a signed seat, seventh grade, and I was right under his nose. He stood here and I sat there. And this day he came and he said, you three. And he pointed to the three of us sitting right under his nose. Come over here. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I was scared. I was sweating bullets. So were my friends. I thought to myself, what did we do? I can't remember that I give him a, a dirty look, right? And he said, he took us over to a cabin and he said, bend over. And I'm like, ah, man, seventh grade, man. That's back when they used to do that kind of stuff in school, right? And I'm like, I'm going to spank him today, right? And he said, pick up those books and pass them out. And I remember myself, like, I was so, so relieved, but I was so scared. What happens is when you have somebody like that in your life, your primary relationship with them is don't make them angry, stay out of their way. For some of you, that's how you feel about God. Don't make him angry. Stay out of his way. Uh, This would have resonated with the original audience. You need to know this. The ancient Near Eastern view of the gods would have been they were volatile. They were fickle. They were angry. And the primary posture towards many of them was to appease their angry. Don't make them angry. Stay out of their way. Here's what God is letting Moses know. God gets angry, but it travels slow. Let me say that again. God gets angry, but it travels slow. There's this Aramaic version of the Hebrew scriptures. So Exodus 34, Hebrew scriptures, Aramaic version of that called the Targum that says this, God is patient. The one who makes, I love this, anger distant and brings compassion near. I wrote this down. God is slow to anger, and I'm glad he's slow. Anybody else? Give me an amen. (laughs) Like, God is slow to anger, and I'm glad he's slow. When you have a picture of a God who's always angry, and some of you have that right now, uh, you, you forgot the slow part, and you're just like, he's angry. Here's what it leads to, fear. You relate to God out of fear. It, 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 it leads to guilt, that leads to legalism, that leads to just relating with God. I don't want to get caught. I want to stay out of his way. I want to appease his anger. You serve God when you see him as primarily angry out of duty instead of delight. 
It's important for us to note that God's anger is not his default setting. God's anger is not his default setting. And it's also important to note, write this down somewhere, his anger is not his default setting. Write that down somewhere. And his anger is different than yours and mine most of the time. Here's what I mean by that. Let me do a little psychology with you here. And you you probably already know this to be true. Anger is mainly a secondary emotion that flows from other things underneath. Uh, I have a picture here that I can show you of, of that. Uh, that anger is a secondary emotion. So my anger, it's like an iceberg. And so my anger is what shows up on the outside, but it's connected, it's flowing from other things. Sometimes I get angry because somebody embarrassed me. Sometimes I get angry because I feel guilty. You ever feel guilty about something and somebody says, it, like, I didn't do that, right? You ever heard the old, I think it's Macbeth, they protest too much. It's like sometimes their anger is because they truly do feel the guilt. I get angry because I'm annoyed. I get angry because I have a bruised ego. I get angry because I'm insecure. My anger many times, yours too, by the way, I'm not alone in this, right? My anger is a product of my bruised ego, my wounded spirit, being annoyed, my insecurity. And sometimes my anger comes from my desire, not simply for justice, but really what I want is revenge. And my anger, and yours too, is many times in a rush, whereas his is slow to show up. Because you know what's underneath of God's anger? None of this. But God is, what, holy. He's perfect and pure in everything that he does. He's just and he's righteous, and God is love. God doesn't just love. God is love. He is the definition of love. And his anger... You ought to write this down somewhere. His anger is always an extension of his holiness. It's always perfect, righteous, pure. It's holy. And it is an expression of his love. It's an expression of his love. I love that. God is slow to anger, which is exactly why some of us need to look at the verse through this lens. Some of us, it's not the slow part, but it's the anger part. It's the anger part that kind of captures us because we think to ourselves, God gets angry? God really gets angry? Anger is not God's default setting, but God does get angry. You need to know that. And for some of us, that's hard to imagine. God gets angry. The Bible talks about his anger a little over 600 times in the Bible. One theologian, J.I. Packer, says it this way, that God's wrath is his steady unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. Uh, I was reading a book that we have referenced uh, some for this series by John Mark Comer, and he actually said this in one of the chapters of his book, we actually crave the wrath of God. He says, and I quote, when people say to me, I can't believe in a God of wrath, I say, yes, you can. Every time you read about a child sold into prostitution by her family, every time you hear about another oil spill by a careless, greedy, multinational corporation, every time you read about rape, murder, genocide, you think to yourself, this is not how it's supposed to be. And you're right. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not God's will. There is no secret plan behind all the injustice in the world. It's evil, plain and simple. Gods and human beings are at war with Yahweh, the God of Exodus 34. 
Yes, Yahweh, God of Exodus 34, has a plan to work all this mess into good, but he still feels the pain of war. Remember, he's a person, not an idea. He has feelings and he feels anger over evil in the world. There are times when the healthy, emotional, mat emotionally mature response to evil is anger. Another author said it this way, God wouldn't be good if he didn't get angry. Woo, think about that. Let me show you where he's getting that from. The chapter before the one we're in. Just peek at it if you have your Bibles open. Y'all look at this. In my Bible, it's on the same page. Just peek at it. It says this, Now show me, Moses says, your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my, I say it aloud, what? My what? Goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. The slow to anger God. It's interesting that God says, I'm slow to anger. For some of us, we're like, I didn't know God got angry. We're like, is that okay for God to get angry? And it's extremely interesting to me in light of the cultural shift that we find ourselves in to redefine love. And then what, we try, what we're trying to do is redefine God in that effort. And remember, no culture is going to be above their idea of God. God is love. And when we try to redefine love, for the most part, we redefine it as this indiscriminate tolerance for just about anything, except intolerance. I found this uh, notice, intolerance will not be tolerated. You ever see a, a bumper sticker like that? Intolerance will not be tolerated. I love that, right? I mean, that, 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 that is a contradiction but we live in us. We want to redefine love, we want the, and, and what we do is we redefine God in that, as though God is this God. Well, He's just indifferent. He's, he tolerates anything. He's love. Everything's okay. I wrote this down in my notes. You ought to write it down. God is slow to anger, but I'm glad He gets angry. Aren't you? Anger shows relationship. They go hand in hand with love. Perfect anger always flows from a righteous motive and is an expression of love. I read this somewhere and I think it's true. The opposite of love is not necessarily hatred. It's not even anger. The opposite of love is indifference. I don't care. When I love someone and I see them threatened, there would be anger. I remember I went to this water park with my kids and a friend of mine went with us. He was a former Marine his name was Kent. If you happen to be watching this, man, shout out to you. Uh, he's a big, bald guy like me, and uh, kids are out doing their thing. Water slide. We took some of their friends with us. My wife is back at just kind of, we had a little picnic going on there, and she's kind of laying on a blanket. I think she might have been taking a nap. I was way over here in one part of the water park. My friend Kent was way over here in another part of the, the, the water park. And I remember these teenagers were, came up behind my wife, and she didn't even know it. And like there was five or six of these guys, and they're making these faces, and they're messing with our stuff, and they're like kind of making gestures towards her, and she didn't realize it. And, and I caught their, I, I, I saw it from way across here over here on this side of the parking lot. And, and I remember the minute I saw it, can I tell you what I felt? I love my wife. And, 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 and I felt this protective anger, that this righteous need to come to her defense, right? And I made a beeline right for those guys. My friend who's way over here, he didn't see my wife. He saw me. And you know what he could see in my eyes? He could see my, my nose was getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> 
And he said, I knew something was going on. So we met at the same time right there at my wife. And I looked at those young fellows and I said, you got a problem? <laughs> and they said, no, sir, we don't. And I said, good, then I don't have a problem. Go back to what you're doing. You see how, like, like it, it kind of, like if I had been indifferent, like, I don't know, I mean, whatever. But I love my wife. You see, God gets angry. Sometimes his anger shows up in an active, just remember this, active response of judgment towards evil. You can see this in the, the Old Testament, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that story? Like over and over again, Abraham like prays for the city and, and God listens. <clears throat> but in the end, there's this active response of judgment that you read about in the book of Genesis. Uh, I hear people say this, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. There is no active judgment in the New Testament. And all I'd say to you, if that's you, I'd say, well, apparently you haven't read to the end of the Bible. Like you can read the book of Revelation and see God's active judgment against evil. But, but there are times when his judgment is a passive response of judgment towards evil. What I mean by that is this, is that he gives people over to the natural consequence of their rebellion. Uh, do you remember last week, uh, Aiden told us the story of Jonah. He went and he preached to the city and they repented. And there's this major revival. Like, awesome, right? And Jonah was mad that God was kind and compassionate and forgiving. Remember that? That same city, 150 years after Jonah, uh, a prophet wrote about that city. His name was Nahum. Now, my guess is you didn't do your devotions in Nahum this morning. You ought to. It's a fascinating book. But, but I can tell you this, that 150 years after this big revival in Nineveh, Nineveh eventually, it was short-lived. And they went back to their wicked ways. And literally, when you get to the book of Nahum, you see God's anger. This, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance, is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. There it is, quoting it again. But he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's right out of Exodus 34. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. The earth trembles at his presence. That's the God that we serve. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. That literally there comes a time it's like no more. 150 years later. And the way his judgment looked to the Ninevites was this, is that this, they were part of the Assyrian Empire and that the empire called the Babylonian Empire comes and takes them over and God's anger, God's wrath is him giving them over to the natural consequence. You find this in the New Testament. Can I just show you this? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, circle that, God gave them over. He just gives them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship. I mean, we're, we're there today. 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Theologians call this the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God. That that's the passive wrath of God is simply that, that he gave them over to the natural consequence of their rebellion. In fact, you could make a case, now just stay with me on this, that some of the ways Jesus describes hell is, is to simply see that sin left to its end leads us to an outer darkness. We might miss it because of the Jewish metaphors, but he says that hell is this place where the worm doesn't die. In, in at minimum, right? At minimum, it's the image of a consciousness continually be eating away by guilt and regret. That, that hell is this place of outer darkness, the total absence of God and all of his goodness. Where there's gnashing of teeth, this would have been a Jewish image that meant self-condemnation and self-loathing. The fire is the agony of God's displeasure. Listen, can I just, let's just talk frank, because I know maybe you might not agree with the person next to you, whatever, but whatever else hell is, or maybe at its minimum, it is the full fruition of telling God to get out of your life and allowing sin to grow unchecked in you. And it is that God obliging that request. C.S. Lewis said this, the Bible asserts that each person will go on forever. Listen to this. There will be a good deal of things that would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 80 or so years, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. If I have a bad temper, if I'm jealous, it'll get worse for a span of 80 years. The increase isn't very noticeable. But what does that look like to have that temper and that jealousy grow nonstop for millions of years? Sin's like cancer. It never stops growing. In the end, God gives you over to what you You've been asking for. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you really asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs? To give a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty, offering every miraculous help? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. But he has done so at Calvary, at the cross of Jesus. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, he says, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Notice what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it is the cross of Jesus. It is at the cross of Jesus. It's in the cross of Jesus that the anger of God shows up in absolute holiness and in a demonstration of his incomprehensible love. The cross is the perfect expression of the slow to anger God who is holy and loving. Do you guys remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? Do you remember Luke 22? Father, if you're willing, take, say it out loud, take this cup from me. What, what cup is he talking about? You have a cup of coffee? Wait, what cup? The cup throughout scripture refers to the cup of God's righteous and holy wrath, perfect wrath. At the cross, God demonstrated his love and offered forgiveness to us because Ephesians 2 says that in my sin, I am by very nature an object of God's wrath. But Jesus at the cross drank my cup for me. Which is why it says this, he demonstrated his love for us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more, say it, 
Shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What in the world does this mean? Some of you, you have this view of God. He's always angry. He's predominantly angry. And that's going to lead you to relate to him in a way that stays out of the way. It's going to be all duty. It's going to be no delight. It's going to be grit and legalism. It's going to be fear. Others of you, you have a God who never gets angry. He's evolved from that. And can I just suggest this, that if you have that God, he is indifferent at best. He is not a God who truly loves you. But what happens is when we run this way, we get into extreme liberalism. We begin to create a God in our own image. When we get that way, we get into extreme legalism. We create a God who's a drill sergeant in the sky. But when we realize he is a God who gets angry, not never, but he is slow to get there, those two things meet perfectly at the cross where God's holiness shows up because Jesus is drinking the cup of God's judgment for me in my place. And God's love is demonstrated because it is God who is literally standing in my place in the person of Jesus Christ. He took what you deserve, what I deserve, so we could receive what we could never earn. Wow. Now what? For those of you who would say you're a follower of Jesus, I think the very next thing that's interesting to me is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He didn't count people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are, say this out loud, we are therefore Christ, what? Ambassadors, representatives, spokesmen. As though God were making his appeal through us, the slow to anger God making his appeal to us. Remember that. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. We're ambassadors of the slow to anger God who absorbed our punishment, who drank our cup of wrath at the cross. You know what that means? I think it makes this verse pop different. We're the righteousness. We are the righteousness of God. We, We are ambassadors of Christ. He says, in light of that, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to what? Listen. Slow to what? Speak. Slow to what? Become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the what? Righteousness that the slow to anger God desires. Boy, I tell you, what do we do with this? I thought of this cartoon where literally this guy is showing up, and I'm not saying any of this is theologically accurate. It just makes me think of something. It must be St. Peter, and this guy is getting ready to go into heaven, and he says, you were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. I'm just fascinated with that, right? Because the fact of the matter is that it can be so easy for many times our culture to look at those who would say they're followers of Christ and say, why in the world are they such jerks? Why are they so mean? 
Why are they so angry? For those of us who've said yes to Jesus and the finished work of Christ at the cross and the empty grave, we are representatives of the slow to anger God who saved us. And here's what that means. You ought to write some of these things down. First and foremost, it means this, that much of what ignites Dan's anger, your anger, is not the righteousness of Christ. Most of what arouses my anger is a bruised ego, an annoyed spirit, insecurity. And as a representative of Christ, I want to confess that and repent of that. I have been saved by a slow to anger God. But it also means this. I need to have my anger aroused. The results of sin and and injustice ought to ignite a righteous and loving ember inside of me and inside of you as a follower of Christ. Not an anger that pickets and protests and posts online. That's not the anger. But just as the one I represent, I will not condemn but I will run into the mess of injustice. I will run into the shrapnel of sin with a message of hope and a salve of redemption that is only found in the slow to anger God who ran to our rescue. And it means this, if I really am and really do believe that the compassionate and gracious God took my cup of wrath at the cross, then I have been entrusted with the most incredible message known to man. And I want to do whatever I can to make sure my family, my friends, see this lived out in me and know the hope of the gospel. You see, that's that's what we do. That's why this matters. Some of you are listening to me and you've never said yes to Jesus. I'm so glad that you listened this long and I, I, I love the fact that you tune in and You've never repented of your sin and you've never accepted the free gift of salvation found in Christ. Actually, some of you think God has it out for you. And I want to tell you just the opposite is true. He doesn't. Look at this. He actually doesn't want you to perish. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises either. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Slow to anger. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. No one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God. You weren't designed for wrath. Hell was not made for you. It was made for Satan and his demons. Not for you. But you must choose to receive the pardon that has been extended to you, the cross of Christ. One of the most unusual Supreme Court cases ever was in 1833, United States versus Wilson. George Wilson had pled guilty for essentially grand theft and assault. In June of 1830, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to Wilson. But Wilson, for reasons undisclosed and unknown, refused it. The Supreme Court made a ruling then, a pardon must be received to be valid. It is an act of grace that cannot be forced. If unreceived, it is not valid. That man died with the pardon on the president's desk. Some of you will die and go to hell with your sins paid for and the pardon laying on the cross. And his plea to you today, wherever you're watching this, in your car, listening to it, at the coffee shop, at home, 
all by yourself with some friends, maybe your family. His plea and his invitation to you is to accept the pardon found in Christ. He drank the cup. It was the perfect expression of God's holiness and his love for you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. That's his invitation to you. Would you bow your heads with me? Some of you have never said yes to Jesus. Why not right here in the end of this little talk? You can say, God, I believe you love me and that Jesus died in my place for my sin. And right here in this moment, I want to say yes to him as my Savior and as my Lord. And I want to follow him the rest of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to email me. Let me know that. Some of you with your heads bowed while we're praying are your followers of Christ and maybe you need to confess of an anger that isn't representative of being the righteousness of Christ. Maybe you're an angry person and your anger has scarred people and wounded people and maybe right now you need to repent and confess of that. God, then I pray that you would arouse the embers of indignation in us that would lead to compassion, that would lead us to run into the messiness of a world that is literally suffering from the shrapnel of sin and sinfulness. God, I pray that we would do so in a way that declares and demonstrates the beautiful hope found in Jesus in the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.